Sunday, I had the great privilege of uh, not serving in any capacity for our Sunday services. I was able to sit there with my wife and just worship Christ together and hear God's word. I don't know if that's the reason why, but last Sunday's message was so powerful to me from John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, such a powerful message, especially during this time of Christmas, focusing on Christ. So I thought for the remaining weeks, we take a break from Second Timothy and focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Focus on the true gift that God has given to us. Uh, doubly so for during this season that our, our worship might be heightened and deepened as we uh, remember Christ's birth uh, many years ago. Uh, to that end, I want to open up, your, open up to Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 18. And uh, not sure what title to use, uh, preparing for the king, receiving the king, uh, marks of true revival. Uh, pick the one that you like the best, uh, but that will be the kind of theme that we will, we will use to study this text together, Luke 3, 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and as Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachontius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, <clears throat> that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff 
he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Well, um, start by telling you a little bit about my my family. We have, if you don't know, four children. And um, a common activity that they involve themselves in is bickering and fighting with each other. So Elizabeth and Emma fight and bicker fairly frequently. Emma and Ethan, they're only one year apart. They have a competitive edge to them. They fight and bicker quite frequently as well. And Eleanor fights with everybody. <laughs> she fights with me and mom, Elizabeth, Emma, and Ethan. She is the bully of our household. So seeing them fight you know, reminds me of how I used to fight with my, my sister. I have a three year, sister who's three years older than me, and uh, you know, she was a good sister. You know, She had a tender, kind heart, and I hardened it for her. <laughs> because I was such a, a, a bad kid, such a rotten kid. And, you know, I, I don't know, I, I got the gift of preaching when I was born. So I was always able to argue and debate and, and just use my words to hurt, hurt her. And uh, so she couldn't win with, uh, with argument. And, you know, she couldn't win physically. Of course not, right? And so, like... So she would, her, her final way to get back at me was a silent treatment. She would, like, give me the silent treatment. That was the worst. I, I could handle anything except the silent treatment. One of the worst was when, um, I think I was in junior high or something. I was, like, sixth grade or seventh grade. She was in ninth grade. Really bad. You know, we, we're living in a condo in Downey. We're playing ping pong in the garage. And, you know, ping pong is one of those sports where I'm just a natural, Right? <laughs> Anything else, I'm awful at. My one skill in life is ping pong. I'm, I'm above average. So I'm like, you know, schooling her left and right. And she's all an- she gets angry because she's losing. So she got, she got angry. So I, I left the garage. And that is bad. I, you know, I turned the electricity off to the garage door. And I locked the garage door behind me. And so most guys know you could unhook that garage door and manually open it. But most, most women, and my wife, my sister didn't know she could do that. So she was trapped in the garage. And uh, I could hear her yelling and screaming. So my grandfather was living with us. We're sitting and watching TV. And my sister started throwing things in the garage, making all this ruckus. My grandfather's like, what is that noise? And I'm like, oh, I'm drying some shoes in the dryer. He's <laughs> making that noise. We were there for at least 45 minutes. My grandfather's like, that doesn't sound like shoes. He went out there and he opened the door and my sister was so angry. She was so upset. It was uh, you know, unbridled anger on her part. And she gave me the silent treatment for, it's still going on to this day. <laughs> a long time, for a long time. Well, I bring that up because with Luke 3, God is breaking his silent treatment to the nation of Israel. God was so angry. God was so upset with the nation of Israel. He was silent for 400 years. The intertestamental period lasted for 400 years. The last prophet of God was Malachi. And God refused to speak. God sent no one. And John the Baptist is the first and the last first prophet after this. Uh, after Malachi, and the last prophet of, of God. And he comes and he breaks that silence. 
the last words of Malachi was one of a curse. How God will send his anointed one to judge the nations. But he promised a prophet that will come in the spirit of Elijah. And he will bring revival. He will bring revival. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. There is this enmity where fathers have forsaken their children and the children have forsaken their fathers and their fathers' faith in Yahweh. Uh, God promised that before the anointed one comes, this great prophet in the spirit of Elijah will come and you will bring restoration, you will bring renewal, you will bring reconciliation where families will be united not just toward one another, but united toward faith in God, faith in Yahweh. And John the Baptist appeared, first prophet in 400 years, and Jesus called him the greatest who ever lived. He is the greatest man. Matthew 11, 11 through 12, Jesus said, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He is the greatest man who ever lived. And yet he, Jesus said, Anyone who, is, who enters the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. The least of the one who enters God's kingdom, who is saved, is greater than John the Baptist. How is that possible? It's because the only way to enter God's kingdom is by forgiveness of sins, by the Messiah, by having his perfect righteousness imputed to us, credit to our account. So the worst sinner saved by grace because Jesus is clothed. We're clothed with the garb of Christ. His righteousness is greater than even John the Baptist. So this... Uh, greatest prophet ever arrives and he scours the land preaching the word of God. He preaches what Isaiah preached many years ago starting in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, valley will be lifted, mountain made low, Crooked, crooked become straight, rough places smooth, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist uh, clearly, I mean, willingly declared that he was not the Christ. He was not the anointed one. He was the herald who went before the anointed one. And that was common practice for kings. Before they would go on journeys, they would send... Um, heralds to go and they will make proclamation on the roadway. The king will come along this route and they will make preparations so that the king and his entourage can pass through safely without encumbrance. So they would come upon boulders and they would get engineers and workers and laborers to remove that boulder. They would come upon a ditch and they would smoothen out that ditch to get any branches or any unsightly things they would they would cast it aside, make a clear way for the king. That was uh, the role in the ministry of John the Baptist. And yet, uh, what he declares here is even, is even more amazing. He's not here to uh, fill up some ditches or remove some boulders. He is here to remove uh, 
mountains. Right? So it's like a herald coming in. The king doesn't want to go up this narrow pass and the curvy roads of Mount Big, of Big Bear Mountain. He wants you to clear it, level it. And we come to Arizona and there's a big canyon called the Grand Canyon and doesn't want to go around it. He wants you to fill it. He wants you to make this path straight because the king is coming. This tells us what kind of king is, uh, is being heralded by John the Baptist. He's not just any earthly king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. If you uh, go to Isaiah 40, verse 3, and that's Isaiah's uh, prophecy that's quoted here, you will note that the, the word Lord is all uppercase Lord. And the Lord that is coming is not Adonai, it is Yahweh himself. See, before God sent um, Moses, God sent his judges, his prophets, and his kings. But now, he will come himself. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, he is coming himself. Therefore, the call is not just to fill ditches and level small hills. It's to clear the way. And he's talking figuratively in terms of human hearts. Clear the way so that the king might come. Now, what kind of king is, is this? Um, he is a, you know, it's a paradoxical king. He is, a, in his first coming, he's a humble king. He is a lowly king. He comes with mercy and grace. He comes lowly, sitting on a donkey. He's coming here not to be served, but to serve. He's coming to give, his, give himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And at the same time, he is a, a king with supreme power. He is a, a ferocious king, a, a powerful king. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, you know, illustration that Aslan, the, the, the lion, is a, a type of Jesus uh, as, as a king. And uh, in, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children are hearing for the first time of Aslan, the lion. The girl, Lucy, asks, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. He's not a man. He is a uh, the king of the woods. He is the son of the great emperor beyond the seas. He is king of the beasts. He is a lion. He is the great lion. Susan replied, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replied, uh, he isn't safe. He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The king that is coming is a gentle, lowly, humble king. But he's not a safe king. He is good, but he's anything but safe. John the Baptist later said in verses 15 through 17, when they were asking him if he was the Christ, he said, he said I baptize with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He was saying, all I can do is baptize you with water. I don't know your hearts. One who is coming is mightier than I. And the Jewish rabbi said, the work of untying someone's shoelaces was so lowly, you shouldn't ask even a slave to do it for, for you. It's the lowest, most menial, humbling task. And he said, he is so great, I am not worthy to untie his laces. And when he comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will have the power to save and to damn. He will have the power to immerse you in the Holy Spirit or also to send you into hell. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will make that great separation between wheat and the chaff. He will divide and he will take the chaff and burn it and he will take the wheat and bring it into the storehouse. This is the long-awaited Messiah that is coming. John the Baptist breaks that silence and he's telling people, you need to receive him as the king. He is coming as Lord, as Master. He will have nothing to do with us unless we receive him as he is worthy. He is not just a Lord, a King, a Master. He is the Mighty One. He is Yahweh Himself. He is coming. He is telling the people to prepare themselves, get ready. And He proclaims to them a baptism of repentance. Now, as He does this, a revival breaks out. People from far and wide are streaming towards the other side of the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Uh, his disciples are multiplying every day. A great crowd is forming. The Gospel of Matthew tells us even the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees, they take note of this revival and they go out to the desert to seek for themselves and some even participate in being baptized. Now as John the Baptist sees us, all these people streaming towards him to be baptized, a peculiar response is found from John. Verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Brood of vipers. Vipers are a species of serpents. There is no serpent that is more poisonous the person bitten by them swallows up almost immediately and falls down dead. It doesn't make sense here. They're coming to John to be baptized. And he calls them snakes. You family of snakes. Now we got to wonder, um, is there some cultural gap here? Right? Some, uh, something that, is, it, is this an idiom? Something we don't understand? Is this a metaphor that we're not getting here? Because why is he calling them snakes when they're coming out to be baptized? Well, it is apparent that they were, he's calling them serpents because they were coming to be baptized with wrong motivations. They were putting the cart before the horse. He calls this 
a baptism of repentance. He later says concerning verses 11 through 14 that these are all fruits, keep bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. The generosity, the integrity, the righteousness that is called upon by the tax collectors, the soldiers, it's all fruits of repentance. And yet these people are coming and they're trying to obey without trusting in in John's message, in the gospel. They're coming with wrong motivations. That is why he calls them brood of vipers. He is telling us again and again how motivation is everything. Why we obey is more important than obedience in itself. Why we obey. This was the first message of, of Jesus Christ. On the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon is all about two ways. And uh, it ends with this metaphor of sandy land and building it upon the rock. And what's the difference? If you build your house on the sand, on that day it will come crashing down. But if you build your house on the rock, it will stand. What is the difference? If we look at the whole sermon, we realize the difference is motivation. The difference is by faith. If you're building your house because you trust in God, then your house will stand. But if you're building out of, out of legalism, out of religion, out of pride, out of guilt, out of shame, out of fear, on that day when the winds come, it will come crashing down. That is what John the Baptist is saying here. Baptism is to be a sign of fruit, an evidence of repentance. Obedience must come, must follow repentance, must follow faith. That is why uh, John the Baptist said the axe is already at the root of the tree. God is ready to cut down the root. He's not cutting down the leaves. He's not cutting down uh, the flowers here. He's not pruning here. What is needed is not some change of behavior. What is needed is the whole tree is to be cut down because the root is bad. The foundation is bad. Because they were skipping over faith. They were thinking if they were just baptized by John, they would be saved. Wow, this is uh, so powerful for those of you who are still striving to establish your own, own righteousness as a basis for your standing before God. This tells us uh, you, know, you can give away all your jackets. You can give away all your food. You can be the most uh, righteous employee You can be the most uh, contented person in the whole world. And those things will not save you. Religious deeds won't save you. Reliance on your obedience will not save you. Only faith in Christ. Religion is all about outward duty, outward obedience, outward behavior. God is concerned with the heart. You must receive Jesus as your king 
who is bringing salvation, who comes not conquering us by force, but by his love, or by his kindness. You must disavow all external bases of righteousness and come humbly before the king to receive his grace. Baptism must be a fruit of repentance. Second, for believers, uh, baptism was required only for Gentile converts. So that is why uh, he he says, uh, do not say to yourselves, we are children of Abraham. Only those who are Gentiles were converting to Judaism were baptized. If you were a Jew, you were not baptized. So many Jews were offended that they needed to be baptized again. That John was calling for baptism. They were grumbling in their hearts. We don't need this. This is only for Gentiles who are outside of the chosen race. Well, just like for Christians. Uh, Prevalent heart towards, this is the prevalent heart towards the gospel. Many Christians think, I don't need the gospel. I'm already a Christian. I'm already in. Uh, Out of spiritual pride, they get angry, they get upset. They think, enough already. I've heard the gospel before. It is only for unbelievers. Why are we focusing on non-Christians? I don't need the gospel I just need the law to teach me how, to, how I'm supposed to obey. Gospel is not for me. This was my experience. Um, last year around this time, during my sabbatical, my wife and I visited Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg. We were there with a couple from our church before, Donald and Sohi. We're visiting that church. And, you know, we go to uh, Covenant Life to hear at least uh, Joshua Harris. If not, listen to C.J. Mahaney. But the day we were there, there was a guest speaker. One of the associate pastors was speaking. My wife and I were kind of bummed. We were sitting down listening. And he's preaching from Ephesians 2. And it was not 8 through 9. It was 1 through 5. And yet, he was just preaching the gospel. The whole sermon was not exposing the text, but it was just preaching the gospel. Now, my wife and I, our hearts were, we're talking later, but our hearts were grumbling within us, Right? Like, we, I've heard this already. I know this already. You know, get to the meat of the text. Why are you preaching just the gospel and grace? And after the service was over, Don and Sorhi were like raving on how great the message was. Praise God for, for wisdom. My wife and I didn't say anything. We just said, that's a beautiful church, and the praise was great, and let's go have lunch. But we were very silent towards the message. Because that was our hearts. Our hearts were, I don't need the gospel. Gospel is only for, un, for non-Christians. Well, I know now how, that I was so wrong. Right? The gospel is not just a way to be saved. The gospel is not just, to, just a way to enter into salvation, to a right relationship with God. The gospel is how we live as Christians. The gospel is the power, not just for our justification in a forensic sense, but for our 
Justification in the, in the whole sense where we are sanctified. It is a transforming power that renews us day by day. That's why Luther said this. Many Christians are tired of hearing this teaching over and over. They think that they learned it all long ago. However, they barely understand how important it really is. If it continues to be taught as truth, the Christian church will remain united and pure, free from decay. This truth alone makes and sustains Christianity. You might hear an immature Christian brag about how well he knows that we receive God's approval through God's kindness and not because of anything we do to earn it. But if he goes on to say that this is easy to put into practice, then have no doubt he doesn't know what he's talking about. And he probably never will. We can never learn this truth completely or brag that we understand it fully. Learning this truth is an art. We will always remain students of it and will always be our teacher. The people who truly understand that they receive God's approval by faith and put this into practice don't brag that they have fully mastered it. Rather, they think of it as a pleasant taste or aroma that they are always pursuing. These people are astonished that they can't comprehend it as fully as they would like to. They hunger and thirst for it. They yearn for it more and more. They never get tired of hearing about this truth. And this is why Keller says, uh, if you think you understand the gospel, you really don't. But if you say, I understand law, I understand religion, legalism, Right? right. I understand law and consequences, but I don't understand the gospel where it's by grace, where God showers me with love and mercy, with undeserved grace, and where He sees me as completely righteous. That boggles my mind. That wages war against every fiber of my being that is warped with legalism. I understand law, but I don't understand the gospel. If that is your confession, then we are slowly understanding the gospel of God's grace. For the people that were coming to John the Baptist, some were coming by faith. But the broad road, the wide road, they were coming just to get involved in a religious ritual for outward obedience. But their hearts were far from God. Therefore, John the Baptist says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, this is so important here. What John is saying is, uh, we can't legalize this. We can't say obedience comes before faith. He's not saying do these things, and that is faith. He's saying, you believe, therefore be baptized. You believe in the Messiah that is to come, therefore do these things. These are fruits. These are the results of genuine faith. See, religion is all about changing behavior. The gospel is changing the heart. And that's the fruits of repentance here. Talking about heart attitudes. It's talking about generosity, about integrity, about honesty. 
It's about being content. People come and you have two tunics. Don't hoard. Don't be greedy. Be generous. You have more food than you can eat. Share with those who don't have anything to eat. Your tax collectors, don't abuse your authority. Don't cheat others. Be just. Be a man of righteousness and integrity. Be fair. And likewise, the soldiers. Consider how he doesn't talk about religious things, about tithing or praying or, or doing religious duties. He says, don't extort money. And be content with your pay. The gospel is, therefore, what then shall we do? In light of the gospel truth, what is our appropriate response? Close by saying, receive the Lord as king. He is not just a king, he is the king. Disavow all man-based sources of righteousness. Humbly trust in him. Depend upon him. And, uh, and this is something that our family is committing to ourselves to do this year. How should we worship? How should we celebrate Christmas? How should we prepare for coming of Christ, coming of Jesus? Following John's message here. Bear fruit and keeping repentance. How does repentance look, look like? It's by being generous. Right? As Christians in this season... You have two jackets. You should give to someone who doesn't have a jacket. Right? You have food to spare. You should donate that food to those who are in need. Right? You're stealing, flo- stealing from your employee- employers. Right? You're robbing them of things or time. Resolve yourself. Because of grace, because we live on God's generosity, Though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. Our response is to be generous to others, and be fair, and to be just and righteous. Resolve not to rob from your employers. And to be content. In this season, it is so easy for us to be uh, envious, to be covetous, to be greedy, to look at what others have or we don't have in light of what God has given to us through his son. He has given us his one and only son. Resolve to be content. Whatever God has given us, whatever our lot in life, be content because we are rich above all through Christ.